0: Friends, we're about you're about to see a podcast that I did on my own, covering uh, what I think are probably the most important philosophical errors um, that face us today, and and perhaps some elements of Aristotelian Thomas philosophy that can uh, help us to recover or overcome those problems. But before we get to that important podcast, I just want to uh, remind you, if you haven't heard yet, that uh, I'm currently engaged in a, in a additional new project. Uh, that project is called Logos Letter. Uh, this is a A newsletter that I send out every week to 10 days, um, exploring in sort of a broader way the interconnections of faith, politics, uh, culture, uh, philosophy, and public discourse, even a little foreign policy. Uh, here. So uh, if you, you know, engage the philosophical content that you found uh, in this pod, in our podcast, you know, Take everything out Captive or in the courses, I think you're really going to enjoy Logos Letter. So go and check that out. Uh, I will leave a link for it uh, in the notes below. Uh, And um, uh, it's at Logos Letter 2022. You just put that in, should be able to find it. Thanks so much, friends. God bless. Hello friends, this is Dr. Benjamin Smith, lecturer in philosophy with Catholic Studies Academy. Welcome to Take Every Thought Captive, where we explore the 2,000 year old Catholic intellectual tradition. Today I'm uh, coming to you uh, as a solo cast, podcasting um, uh, alone without my usual compatriots, but I had some thoughts that I wanted to share uh, with you uh, today and they're really rooted in sort of the things that are going on in our current culture, our world around us. Uh, but also um, in a course that I just finished teaching. Uh, As some of you may know, um, we've been uh, working on a course uh, entitled uh, The Crisis of Philosophy, 1900 to 2000. Uh, And in that course, I really tried to sort of trace out uh, some of the main philosophical ideas impacting say, the last century of uh, philosophical discourse, I think it was a really important course and, and really helpful really to my own thinking and, you know, sort of really kind of brought to my attention and into my focus, you know, one of the main issues that I that I see uh, in our contemporary setting. And that's really, you know, um, the loss of contact with reality and being, right? Uh, to to borrow a phrase from Martin Heidegger, who I usually agree with on many things, but uh, nevertheless, I think he coined it nicely, the oblivion of being, right? That is, I think one of the main challenges that that we face in the 21st century is simply a disconnect from reality. We are so caught up in our own thoughts. We're so caught up in culture and media and words and perception that we really just don't have a sense of the real anymore. Um, and I think that's deeply uh, damaging right, to our discourse, certainly undermines our intellectual development, but I think most importantly kind of leaves us in this kind of delusional space, right? That undercuts our ability to engage in public discourse um, in a way that is fruitful and helpful. You may recall on several occasions, I've talked about this idea of uh, public discourse. I think it's very important. You know, we're all engaged in a conversation, probably now more than ever, right? With the uh, technology, the communication technology that we have at hand, we're all engaged in a conversation that informs the way that we think, the things that we say, the things that we think are acceptable and the things that we think are not acceptable. And I'm afraid that the sort of delusional position that we're in, that is, our loss of contact with reality undermines our ability to engage with one another. And I can give, I can state this very specifically. In the past, in other settings, it was possible for people who even disagreed with one another to allow reality and being to serve as a standard right um as a as a ground as a shared Mutual framework if you like for discourse for interaction uh and for argument right I was just talking to my children uh today about the fact that you know I uh this would date me a good bit but you know one of the politicians I admire from my uh my childhood would uh, would be Tip O'Neill right he was a he was a Democrat <laughs> uh, and somebody who, you know, sort of on the, the left of things. But I could admire him because I I thought that he was a serious public servant and that there was a reality that we shared in terms of the way we saw maybe America, the importance of family, uh, those sorts of things, right? To be sure, he was what you might call a FDR, the last of the FDR Democrats or something of that nature, In any event, maybe that's not the most helpful example, but I think you understand this idea of reality as a shared framework uh, that we can work within together, right? Well, if we've lost our our contact with being in reality, then we're really in a position where we've lost that idea of a mutual framework within within which we can operate. And as I say, I think that is highly uh, problematic. So I want to say a few things about how we got here, and then a few just, uh, I guess, interventions or, or major points I want to make from the Thomas tradition that I think can sort of at least help us to reorient. I'm not going to rehearse, of course, the entire course. I just finished teaching; that would be far too detailed and and uh, far take too far too much time. But I will just say a couple of things. In a previous podcast, I have talked about this unfortunate phrase, the post postmodern condition, sometimes called, embarrassingly enough, Hopomo, right? For post postmodern condition. Um, and I think that's where we are. So, what does that mean? It means and I can summarize it, I think, very clearly. If you just kind of imagine intellectual life as involving sort of a vertical axis and a horizontal axis. And the vertical axis deals with everything that's factual and descriptive. And then the horizontal axis deals with everything that is um, subjective, right, and evaluative, okay? Well, in in the post-postmodern condition, basically that vertical axis is occupied by science alone. So only what science can tell us is counted as being real. Okay, this ends up in a within the broader intellectual um, world being a fairly reductive uh, picture of reality, right? One where you ultimately end up with something like you know, um, you know, uh, subatomic particles um, that are um, combined and impacted by purposeless forces right um creating necessary outcomes right this sort of odd combination of randomness and this and determinism um and it really is a kind of reductionism to subatomic kind of particles um that is kind of the the factual picture it's supposed to be right that's supposed to be the objective picture right you know let's not think about Humanity right but really you know humans are just, you know, the random sort of offspring of apes, and um, there's no real qualitative differences, right? Uh, between um, our species and other species, that sort of thing, right? Love is just a biochemical event in the brain, um, the, those sorts of ideas. Everything else in this picture is relegated then to the subjective, to the merely biased to just matters of opinion. So that includes all political philosophy that includes aesthetics, the art the world of art and beauty. Um it also includes uh um you know uh, ideas about ethics, morality and of course the family and sexuality and men and women and all of that, right? All of that becomes merely subjective, right? Can just be whatever you want it to be um It's not, you know, sort of, uh, none of that stuff is tied to an essence, to a reality. It's all just, you know, wide open, right, uh, for subjective interpretation. What happens? How do we get to the spot? Well, you can see, before we get to the origins here, you see what a desperately poor picture that is, right? Because then the picture that we get that it's supposed to be descriptive and objective ends up being sort of denuded, racinated, just this kind of um, just reductive, atomistic, colorless, flat world, right? Uh, and that's not the world, of course, that we actually live in. We live in a, a world full of beauty and truth and purpose and meaning and value. But all of that, right, and none of that's real, right, in this picture, and then all of those things that I just said about, you know, aesthetics, meaning, and all of that's merely subjective and often cast as sort of really kind of part of a political manipulation uh, sort of scheme. So, you know, there you see, I think, friends, right, like where we are um, intellectually and culturally, right, a flat view of humanity and culture, a flat view of reality and then a overly subjective view of ethics, culture, and politics. Well, how did we get here? Well, again, very long story. I identified in my course, the, the course I just finished, um, several schools, I would say five to be you know around five major schools in the 20th century. Not going to say too much about them here, just to note them. There'd be phenomenology existentialism, postmodernism, uh, neo-Marxism or critical theory, if you prefer, and then finally scientism. Those first four kind of fit together in a sort of schema, you could say. Uh, phenomenology and existentialism grow out of the effort to kind of grow out of the German idealist tradition and uh, and really sort of an effort to sort of overcome some of the shortcomings in that tradition. I know that phenomenology is popular among uh, some, you know, uh, Catholic uh, thinkers. Um, I think ultimately phenomenology is okay, but not really up to par. It doesn't get the job done. Uh, Frankly, you know, if you read Edmund Husserl carefully and attentively and widely, uh, I think you come away with, you know, pretty much an idealist idealist Kantian kind of picture. What, what, you know, Husserl, for all the good things he does in terms of, you know, what does he do that I think is worthy is that he does help in um, providing arguments for the non-reductive character of consciousness. So I do think that that's an area where he is helpful. But overall, the phenomenological approach depends on epike that is the suspending of judgment about reality and the um exploration of the the you know sort of the <laughs> the transcendental conditions of pure consciousness i mean for its phenomenology is defined right as the study of pure consciousness that's meant to exclude empirical reality okay it's an if it is fundamentally an a priori subjective uh form of uh thought and exploration. Existentialism is an outgrowth of that. Uh instead of looking at sort of the universal elements of subjectivity, we get sort of the drive towards an individualism, right? Right uh in subjectivity. And here I think you really get sort of a repeat then of a kind of um uh, nominalism, really, right, where essences drop out. This would be in the work, especially of uh, Heidegger, and especially Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, as well as what I would call, for lack of a better phrase, mobilism or eventism. Uh, I think I like mobilism better. I don't know. Tell me what you think. Maybe leave some comments there. But that is that everything is flux. That's basically the Heraclitian position. Um, so you could call it that. Oftentimes, that, that position is uh, talked about as atomism, and that's correct. But atomism doesn't quite get at the point, right? Because you still have the uncuttables, right? That is the the atoms, right? True mobilism is that everything changes all the time, right? That we're in a flow of events. And this is how Heidegger can ultimately say that being is time and time is being, right? Um, because ultimately, right, we would just have it's just event after event. So you could call it event metaphysics, if you like. Um, but existentialism, I think, And the phenomenological school that gave rise to it, you know, it's just kind of dead ends and a kind of return to nominalism, um, you know, where we deny the reality of essences and mobilism. The other uh, two forms looked at as postmodernism and neo-Marxism, both of these um, you could call them forms of social idealism. That is, they reinterpret philosophy, thought, science, all of reality in sociological and political terms. So that sociology and politics becomes first po- philosophy, right? And this is how you can talk about, you know, sort of, um, you know, a kind of standpoint epistemology in which, you know, the there's the reality of the victims and there's the reality of the oppressors and they're two different realities, right? Uh, and really only the oppressed have a, more genuine, authentic view because the oppressors impose their own superstructure onto uh, reality, et cetera. I mean, you can kind of play this out in terms of colonialism, post-colonialism, race, gender theory, et cetera, right? You know, what we have is the interpretation, the restatement of all things, but in a political, sociological setting, really that that articulates things in terms of a dialectic of conflict uh, and oppression. There are some things that are interesting about thinking that way, but at the end of the day, you know, it, it ends up trapping you in a form of idealism, right? You're, you're no, you're not in contact with reality. Right. Uh, and so ultimately I think, you know, those forms of, uh, of thought uh, fail. Right. Uh the last one here is scientism, so this kind of goes in a different direction. This is really out of the Anglo-American, English-speaking uh, world of philosophy. Um, kind of grew out of analytic philosophy, which was certainly a kind of rejection of the kind of philosophy that was done on the continent, the kind of more idealist form of philosophy. Scientism, just as the name says, has a strong emphasis on science. You know, scientism is more than just science. I will say that right away. You could oppose scientism and be very pro-science, right? I hope that I uh, that that's my own stance, right? That is that I'm perfectly comfortable with and and interested in the legitimate findings of uh, science done properly with according to its own methodological uh, boundaries and canons. Uh, scientism, though, is a broader philosophical idea, right? Which states that basically all of reality is as science says, and if it can't be said by science, it's just not real, right? Or another way of putting it is only science is reliable and everything else is unreliable or or subjective. Um, You you can kind of see why this might be appealing if your other options are kind of the subjectivity of phenomenology or the kind of dead end of existentialism or the kind of social idealism that you find in critical theory and uh, postmodernism. Uh, nevertheless, right, it's it is, of course, uh, you know, uh, problematic and erroneous on its own sake. We have for its own sake, we've we've dealt with that in other podcasts. So I'm not going to enter into that critique here. But it also leads to uh, you know, this this very condition that I described earlier, that is the post postmodern condition. So I think, you know, if you if you think about those schools of philosophy in the background, you can kind of see like this is where we've gotten to, and this is why, right? These have been the major forms of thought that have involved, uh, that have impacted 20th century uh, culture and life and politics. Uh, so it's it's hardly uh, any surprise, right, that we've gotten to where we are. As sort of a riposte to these uh, forms of thinking, I want to uh, just briefly discuss and explore uh, five Thomist or Aristotelian points that I think could help kind of reorient us in our uh, hope, hopefully, in our task of reconnecting with being and reality, moving beyond the limitations of idealism and phenomenology and, and those sorts of forms of thought. Um, the first here, and I think this kind of goes right at the sort of epistemological problems. I don't know to rephrase that, it goes right at the problem of epistemology, right? You know, it, I'm not being at all uh, novel uh, <laughs> or particularly insightful to say that I think in a lot of ways, epistemology itself is the problem, right? Um, but prior to the modern period, certainly there was cognitive theory, uh, theories of cognition about how knowledge, you know, worked. There were, of course, radical skeptics, right? But we're talking about a minority 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 view right and really the kind of skepticism that that was engaged in there was really kind of almost a spiritual uh kind of exercise a uh, spiritual exercise that's meant to lead to a certain kind of tranquility and peace um epistemology as a attempt excuse me friends uh, to um, Provide a systematic demonstration or explanation of the foundations of knowledge. I think is problematic in itself. To be perfectly honest, it is a, a something that that comes to the fore with Descartes. To be sure, Plato dealt with it some, but again, only I think sort of as a propedutic to his his you know more important metaphysical and ethical insights. Um, I think for Descartes, front and center, right that is knowledge itself. And the idea of knowledge has become a problematic concept for modern man. And Descartes is a very good example of, uh, of that, right. He wants to throw everything out um, that doesn't seem indubitable, right. Um, To him, right. To his own mind. Right. And then from there, build up uh, with everything else. Now, I think that's just wrong at the outset. <laughs> I don't think that this is known, this is known in the Aristotelian tradition and taught that if you have to demonstrate everything, then you'll know nothing. That is, there has to be some room for what are called first principles and a kind of knowledge that isn't derived from demonstration or ratiocination or argument, but rather is an immediate sort of knowing based on experience to be sure, right? Uh, but that that is intuitive uh, and direct. Um, again, does involve experience and thinking about experience, so you get comparison uh, and distinction making, right? Uh, what we could call understanding, the virtue of understanding, the intellectual virtue of understanding. But not, strictly speaking, demonstration, right? So that we need a level of knowledge where that is baseline, is used to demonstrate other things, but is itself not demonstrated. But not arbitrary either. This is the key key point here, right? It may be true that not everything can be proven. But not everything can be rationally denied either. Right. Um, You know, to to not to deny the reliability of our cognitive mechanism or cognitive uh, processes is ultimately a self-defeating kind of move. Right. Because Either that view is, uh, that is the, the skepticism about cognition, either it's well-grounded or it's not well-grounded. If it's well-grounded, then it's grounded in an argumentation. Well, if our own cognitive mechanism is not itself reliable, then that argumentation supporting skepticism itself is not reliable. Do you see the point, right? It's self-defeating, right? Or you could say, well... My skepticism of cognitive of cognition uh, is ungrounded. Well, if it's ungrounded, it's baseless, and there's no reason to believe that it's true. So you're on the horns of a dilemma there. I think if you're going to de- try to deny um, basic reliability, right, uh, and um, and so in that way we could say it's not rational, right, or put it this way: you cannot rationally deny or doubt right, the reliability, the basic reliability of our cognitive faculties. Uh, Moreover, right, I think, you know, even sort of more importantly, or just as importantly, the whole project of demanding a demonstration of knowledge, right, as such, is really kind of incoherent, because you're demanding something that simply can't be done by definition, okay? Now, why do I say that? If you're trying to demonstrate the reality of knowledge, well, demonstration always presupposes prior knowledge, right? But if you're saying, well, you know, you can't know unless you can demonstrate that you know, then you're asking us to demonstrate what would be the very foundations of demonstration. But that's an impossibility, right, if I'm not going to accept those very foundations. Does that make sense? Or you're asking, it's sort of like you're asking me to um, um, the square circle or something, right? Uh, I can't demonstrate without prior knowledge, but if you're doubting the very existence of knowledge, then there's no way I can demonstrate uh, the existence of knowledge. You're asking for uh, the impossible, right? So I think that's very uh, important uh, as well. What I'm trying to get at here, right, is, again, while not everything can be demonstrated, some things cannot be rationally denied. And those are what historically, classically, we would call first principles, right, the found, very foundations of our cognitive life. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if we we begin with that that sort of, um, let me just say, once again, Aristotle recognized this. Okay, that if you have to demonstrate everything, you're not going to get it right. For instance, this was huge. It wasn't until graduate school time, really, like, um, really understood this and read it and studied it with any uh, um, uh, great impact or, or attention, and it, it really helped change my a lot of my philosophical and epistemological uh, uh, difficulties and problems uh, because I realized no, there is this base level, right? Uh, and it's a base level. Again, that you don't demonstrate its truth and reality, what you do is you show that it's impossible to actually rationally deny it. right That's called dialectical refutation. right Very important step in learning. Okay, so if we grant then that learning is possible, right, that knowledge is possible, that it's possible for us to um, achieve, you know, uh, knowledge, we need to be very clear about what knowledge is and what truth is, right, and that what truth is, it's truth is grounded in being, okay, truth is not what is lovely, it's not what's correct, it's not what is uh, desired by the many, it's not what makes you feel good. Truth is based on reality. Technically speaking, it's the adequatio, the adequation between of the mind to the thing, the thing the res, right, in's reality, real being, right. That is right, the measure and foundation of truth. Okay, like, truth is rooted in being, right. It's not determined by me, right? It's maybe discovered by me, but it's not determined by me. And this means that any statements to the effect of my truth are utter nonsense, absurd, and should be dismissed out of hand and with contempt, right? This sort of thing is uh, intolerable, right? If we're going to recover uh, the sense of being, right? Being is reality. It is what you run into, if you don't believe in rea- in and I shouldn't say believe, if you don't know, of course you know, but if you don't know the difference between reality and delusion, right, then you will make a shipwreck of your intellectual life. Right? Uh, no doubt about it. So what we're trying to do then is we say that our cognitive abilities are basically reliable, right? It's irrational to deny them. Then our next step, right, is to recognize that to be what does it mean to be reliable it means that our cognitive capacities reliably touch on real being they reliably connect with uh, reality and how do they do so not through a priori intuition not through mysticism not through introspection none of that okay we our knowledge of reality our reliable cognition of reality begins in the senses, right? It begins with texture, feeling, temperature, sound, smell, color, motion, all of those sorts of things, right? You think about your experience at its most basic level, right? Most basic level it's a rich tapestry right of color and motion and sound yeah sound um smells sometimes fortunately or unfortunately um that's a lesser part of my uh, experience uh, um but still there, right? Um, All of that, right, is part of your experience. And then woven into that are not just the external senses, like your eyes and your ears and your sense of touch, right, your skin, uh, but also um, your internal senses, right? Senses about memory or estimations, right? So that we also experience, uh, oh, that's going to be good and pleasant for me. Or, oh, that's going to be painful for me, right? Which, of course, gives rise to various passions, right? Passions within us, right? Our emotions, right? So that estimations, you know, perceptions of, of harm or benefit, and then experiences of fear or desire, right? Those are all part of that rich sense experience that we have. And then, of course, very importantly, with memory, right? And so that we don't just sort of have all these things sort of in some sort of like ah uh, uh, temporal bunch, right, or 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 um, bricolage or something, right. Rather, we have it in a temporal sequence, right, that makes sense of it all, right. I think it's so important, right, to emphasize that, right, that all of our learning begins there, right, and that that it's out of that sort of rich uh, dynamic, right, that all of our learning. Uh, must come, concretely. Then, you know, practically speaking, what this means is, methodologically speaking, that our our ideas ultimately need to be traced back to the empirical, in some way or the other. Now, I'm not trying to be a radical empiricist like John Locke or David Hume, of course, but what I'm just trying to say is there needs to be something in the experience that grounds right our concepts, right, something in the tangible, in the individual, in the particular, in the changing, in the sensible, right, that sort of justifies a train of thinking, or at least gives it uh, its original impetus, right, Uh, out of which it grows. I think this is actually so important, friends, because it helps us to avoid, you know, frankly, a lot of nonsense, right, Uh, a lot of sort of just fantasy, delusion, and ideology, right, Uh, that might sort of distort things, right? Lots of times we don't need to analyze or critique. We just need to look and remember, right? And that's a perfectly adequate uh, critique sometimes, right? You know, we, we spend too much time, sometimes I think arguing about definitions. When lots of times we should just say, look, right? This is what I'm talking about. And this and this and this, right? Now, even though this is super important, right? Looking and remembering right? Um, Looking and remembering sort of is a pivot point in our intellectual lives that opens us up towards a higher order, right, of cognition. Now, again, saying higher, this is one of the things we have a problem with. So it's an infantile intellectual vice we have. We tend to think that everything is either one thing or the same and equal, or they're totally different and one is good and the other bad, or something like that, right? No, it doesn't have to be like that, okay? The learning of experience, the kind of knowledge and cognition of experience, experiential cognition, memory, looking, okay? That uh, is a real and genuine form of knowledge, But there are higher and better forms. That doesn't make experience bad. It just makes it less, okay? So don't get those two things confused, right? Um, Looking and remembering help us to see patterns, right? Help us to see what is consistent and stable within the flux of experience, right? Within the... Uh, changing sensations and perceptions and experiences that we have. One of the great, I think, and, and interesting, you know, just permanent issues in philosophy is, when we get this, this goes, goes back to the ancient Greeks, is there a permanent reality? Is everything in flux? If there's not a permanent reality, then we can have no true knowledge, no absolute truth, right? If there is a permanent reality, then absolute truth. If everything's changing, the no absolute truth, only relative truth, that sort of thing, right? You can see how those would line up. Uh, you know, we have Plato and Parmenides on one side, Heraclitus and maybe the Sophist on the other. Well, what's interesting, of course, is that you know Aristotle, master of those who know, um, was able to, to to sort of thread <laughs> the 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 higher median golden mean here, right? Which is, uh, I was going to say thread the needle, but anyways, I was able to obtain obtain the mean here, which is finding what's stable and consistent within the flux of change, right? We can all, if we're looking at all and remembering, see that things have changed, right? Um, So, you know, you can see my beard is longer and grayer than it was before, right? Um, Those sorts of things, right? Right. those are changes, and we can see those changes, right? And in fact, if we exercise our memory and our perception with any uh, sort of force, we can come to see that there's a lot of change, okay? Um, and and the change pervades our experience, right? I mean, from emotional and personal to professional to political to just physical and feeling our bodies change over time, all those things, right? Change is everywhere, Okay but it's not everything right amidst that change aerosol says we can find patterns we can find stability right we can find structures right and once we have found those structures right that gives us the possibility then of forming judgments that are always true right and therefore necessarily true Judgments rooted in a universal and unchanging reality or structure that's within the world of change. Right? That's the real pivot. And we and we come to see that through looking and remembering. Think about this. How, how do you how do you find it? Right? You say, Oh, I was feeling badly the other day, and I took a Tylenol. And then I was feeling badly beforehand, I took a Tylenol. And I think. Why do I, how do I know to take a Tylenol? Why am I taking a Tylenol whenever I am feeling poorly? Well, because I have all of these memories of feeling poorly, taking this medicine, feeling better. And what I see is a structure or a repetition, a pattern over time with my memory, right? Once I engage that memory, I can say, hey, you know what? There's a causal relationship here, right? Right. This this medicine causes this pain to be relieved, right? Thanks be to God. Um, so uh with our memory, with our, uh, our perception, right? Remembering and looking, we can begin to find patterns. And those patterns, right, lead us towards unchanging and universal realities and structures that allow us to develop genuine knowledge, uh, and even achieve absolute truth. That's a lot on its own. I've got two more points to make, and then I'll let this go. Uh, at least for now. Um, among these structures that we develop, or not develop, excuse me, among these structures that we discover, right, we can just d- d- discover the structure of nature. Now, over time, I, you know, I've, I've been studying Thomism and, you know, Aristotelian philosophy um, for a long time uh, now, you know, well, over 20 years. Um, I didn't always sort of, I think, fully appreciate uh, this distinction, but it's a very important one and that is that nature really differs than art right nature and art are really different like in reality in friends, if you're if you're thinking about what we engage with and what we encounter today right uh in our in our own sort of cultural moments of angst and conflict um to be sure right the ability to term to distinguish what we're doing what is natural and artificial is very important Now, sometimes we use the term artificial in a negative way. Aristotle doesn't mean it that way, and I don't. And by art, sometimes we almost mean only fine art, which fine art is, of course, quite wonderful. Uh, But it's not the the only relevant sense of art here, right? Art is anything created by human craft, human skill, right? Uh, By reason. My glasses are art. My shirt is art the books in the background here are art, my lovely bust of aristotle that is art okay um the my, all of the technology that i'm using here this is all art it's all artifice it's made by human skill and by human reason okay good enough so um that's important and in fact the artificial a great deal of our lives revolve around the artificial and to be perfectly honest the artificial elevates and blesses and perfects and um supports uh, a great deal of our existence in our lives our lives would be very impoverished without the arts right even just the arts of like you know making i mean this sounds kind of weird maybe making barrels right i mean that was such a huge thing in the old days right you get this, this guy over here he can make barrels They can hold water, so you don't have to take a trip all the time to the creek or to the well. Right? Um, Our lives are blessed by the arts. Okay, Um, but there is something prior to art, and that is nature. Now let's take another little uh, example here. My beard. Okay, so I have trimmed it a certain way, but really. The trimming of the beard according to a certain style or a certain shape presupposes a nature that grows a beard, okay? Let's take something more serious. Take the the training of dogs, right? So, Like, say, guard dogs or sheep dogs. That presupposes a nature that is trainable, right? A nature that can receive that kind of art, right? The art of security training or the art of um, 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 herding, right? The uh, the sheep, right? Uh, the flock. Um, nature is prior to art, right? Nature is, uh, in the old Aristotelian way of speaking, it's a very excellent way of speaking. Nature is an internal principle of motion, Right? When we use the word nature we tend to think about the natural swirl, the natural system and that's fine. there's nothing particularly wrong with that um but more philosophically and more importantly, more relevant to what we're talking about here is that n- there is an intrinsic principle to things, okay um in tr- there are intrinsic principles to change and to motion. I right? mean now let's think back let's step take a step back here instance. Remember, these are points I'm trying to bring up to help us in our reconnecting with reality. First, we should have confidence that we can do so because it's irrational to deny the reliability of our cognition. Second, when we're getting into contact with reality and when we're exercising our reliable cognition, what we're doing is we are getting into contact with reality, right? That is, we are touching on real being. Third, We do that through careful attention and observation and reflection upon our senses, both internal and external. And what we find there, friends, is that there amongst the change, we find stability and structures that allow us to develop, right, uh, forms of universal knowledge and truth. And among those, we're finding that some causes, some principles of change are artificial that is they're created by us but some are already given right they're natural they're intrinsic so there are extrinsic principles of motion but intrinsic principles of change as well right among those structures right that we're finding within change some of them are intrinsic structures of change and how do we how do we discover these natures through observation Paying attention again, looking, remembering, counting, right, and eventually formulating definitions. Right, you don't argue for a definition, right, right. Uh, you first you try to see if it's a coherent definition, if it makes sense, if there are important counterexamples. But then you, for the most part, just say, "Look, it fits what I'm talking about, and it distinguishes it clearly." Right. But this is so important, friends. It means that there are, in in reality, we find embedded, intrinsic. That means not everything is up to us. There are principles and causes of motion and change and development that are not subject to human caprice, human thought. They're not subject to economic structures. They're not subject to uh, culture. They're not subject to political ideologies. They are simply there and part of the permanent reality that we encounter. That's important, right? They're not subject to us, and we're fools if we think that they are. We act like fools if we think that they are. And God help us if we're able to manipulate such things, right? Uh, Then we can find ourselves, obviously, in a um, Frankenstein-like reality, So there are intrinsic principles of change, motion. We find that, and that is nature. And then finally, this fifth point here, and then as I say, I'll wrap up with this. We find that those intrinsic principles of nature, they act for an end. Again, one of those just key important points in Thomist Aristotelian philosophy. Nature acts for an end. Nature is not purposeless. That's a lie. Nature has intention, nature has purpose, let me state more clearly, or uh, finality, right, built into it, such that it's like it has teleology built into it, so that it's like an arrow being shot at a target, okay? That's the way Aristotle thinks about nature. It's not my random that my eyes see My eyes are the way they are so that they may see, right? It's not random that my body is structured the way it is, right? My body is structured the way it is, such that homo sapien life can exist, right? It's not random that I have the teeth that I have. I have the teeth that I have structured the way they are um, in order that I may eat an omnivorous diet, we We go over this again and again. And I would say that this is actually the natural way of thinking. That is that nature isn't random. Nature is aimed. There is a nature to human beings, right? There's a nature to badgers. There's a nature to birch trees. And there's a nature to men and to women, Right? And it's there and it's given and it's observable. And it's only under the influence of Darwinian evolutionary theory and associated philosophical uh, schools that we ever came to doubt such a thing, right? nature is oriented towards, it's shot like an arrow towards certain ends. Mm-hmm. And those uh, ends, right, those purposes are built into nature. They're already there. They're given. They're prior to right um, everything else. Right that we could think. This is important for several reasons. One, it uh, provides a context for thinking about the reliability of our cognition, namely that our cognitive mechanisms and processes are reliable because they're intended for, for truth. That's right, truth. Is the natural end of reason and of speech. Another important element here is that uh, recognize the reality of natural theology sets up an evaluative framework. Right? See, friends, post-postmodernism is false. Value, meaning, and purpose are not subjective; they are tied into reality right? They are embedded in reality. And if we'll only pay attention, we can see that nature acts for an end, right? We can see that the human being is designed to know, right? To know the truth and to love the good, to serve the polis, to love family, to love friends, right? We know these things. We know that nature inclines us towards these objectives, And that when we fail to do so, we act poorly, and in acting poorly, become bad men, performing bad actions. Evaluations are not subjective. They're hardwired into uh, the natural world. To my mind, they all hang together very closely, right? And connect, reconnecting us to certain realities that are vital, right, to our uh, recovery of a genuine, uh, you know, uh, what John Paul II called civilization of love, uh, you know, you might just call civilization, right, uh, to a genuine kind of culture that actually includes, uh, you know, a culture that is in accordance with right reason and Christian faith, right, right? Um, just quickly to hit them one more time it is irrational to doubt the reliability of our cognitive faculties this means then that we do have access to truth right reliably which means we do we we are right to think that we reliably connect with reality because truth is based on reality not feelings or ideology. So right there what we have friends from the you know the great Thomist Aristotelian tradition are ways of thinking about and recognizing right that we do have contact with reality on a reliable not perfect but a reliable basis. Once we, do, once we recognize that, then we say, well, how do we get there? How do we start? We start with that rich tapestry of sensation, right? Uh, ultimately, right, focusing on memory, right, and uh, sensations together, right? So as I call it, memory and looking, right? That through memory, right, we are going to be able to find within reality stable structures, that open up the possibility of universal knowledge and absolute truth. Among those truths is the great truth that nature differs from art, that nature is a reality. What I mean by that is that not every principle of motion is subject to human caprice, but that there are principles and causes of motion and change that are intrinsic to things, intrinsic to reality. We can either conform to those things, those those principles, or we can smash ourselves against them. Right? But they're there and they're hard and they're real. And finally, these great principles that are embedded within reality, that is these natures, they act for an end. They're not random. They have purpose and teleology. Again, they're shot out like arrows shot at a target. Well, friends, I hope that you found these comments useful and edifying, perhaps even a little entertaining. Until next time, God bless.